With our theme being multiplication today, the question, or maybe the word that we need to just start with is the word more. Because I know outside our walls, people are looking for more. And between you and me, I think if we shifted the halos for a few moments, you and I are looking for more too. So let's start with the question then, considering the fact that many of us are Christ followers. Is it okay for a Christian to want more? I grew up in church, and so if you grew up in church like I, chances are you heard verses about contentment. And those verses on contentment made us think that maybe if you're a Christian, you should never want more. And indeed, there are verses that tell us that we should be contented with what we have. But does that mean that we shouldn't save for the future? Or does it mean that we shouldn't invest in the hopes that we'll have more return? Or does it mean that we shouldn't work harder or try to grow our business? And beyond that, we know that even though the Bible talks about contentment, it also talks a lot about something called increase or blessing. Back in five years ago, I did a series called Bless You. And it was based on the idea of the blessing university, what we need to know in order for God to bless us. So how do, how do we resolve the tension between a book that tells us that we should be content with what we have, and yet at the same time, a book that also talks about growing with increase or blessing? Well, I'm thankful that when I study the Bible, I discover that it's a book of balance. It helps me balance out questions like the one I just asked. In Psalm chapter 62, verse 10, the Bible says, if your wealth increases, and there's increase, if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. You see how that balances out? God is saying, if you get more, and it's, it, it almost hints like we will get more. If you get more, don't make it the center of your life. And that's where contentment comes in. So I think, real clearly, there's nothing wrong with us desiring more in life. It's probably the wrong question to ask. You know, the question I ask, is it okay for a Christian to want more? Maybe the question that we, we need to ask is this one. Where do I go for more? Or where do I look for more? That's the question that we're going to work with today. There's another verse in the Psalms that I find really, really important in my life, and especially I think about it when election time rolls around. Psalm chapter 4, verse 6, many people say, who will show us better times? You know, during a presidential campaign, we have the debates and the two characters stand up there, and that's what America's asking, who will show us better times? Or maybe if you're in labor and management and you're in those negotiations that go on, the question is, who will show us better times? Or maybe you're just looking at the economic future of our country and you're asking the same question, who will show us better times? In other words, where do we go for more? As we read on in that psalm, David, David points out that there's something better than having more the way the world sees it. He talks about God's face shining on us, which that has to do with God's favor. In other words, God putting God, we, us being in a place where God can bless us. And then he also goes on to talk about being able to lie down and sleep at night. So David is saying God, God is not only able to give us more, but he's able to give us more that comes with favor and, and more that means more than just money or possessions. And beyond that, God is able to give us more so that we can also sleep at night and have peace. Well, it's not wrong for us to want more if the source of that more is God's blessing. Our series is Simple Math. And we're talking about five simple statements that are built around simple math signs. Already, we've discovered that God adds. Whenever you have an exchange with God, when you come on his terms, he always adds. Last week, wasn't my favorite message, we learned that Satan subtracts. In future weeks, 
we'll talk about division and what we can learn from that and then what the equal sign means. But today, of course, we're going to be talking about multiplication. This is one of the, my favorite talks that I've ever been able to bring. I've already had the privilege of bringing it three times, and I got to tell you guys, even if I screw up the delivery of this, however far you had to drive to be here today, it was worth coming today, even on a spring break weekend, because what you're going to learn today is just absolutely extraordinary. I don't know about you. I think I do, but it's, I want to be a success. I, I, I'm always interested in success. I read, I read business paradigm books. I read success books. Obviously, I study scripture. I want to be a success. My guess is you do too. What I'm going to give you today is the number one key to success in life. It is the one, in fact, I joked last night and said, I'm going to give you the keys to Mercedes. If you know what we're going to learn today, you can be a success in life. Now, here's, here's the thing that we have to understand from the very beginning. And this is the premise that we're going to be working with all day. Anytime you put something in God's hands, he multiplies it. Now, if you had these two pins and you took them out of your hands and you put these two pins in my hands, there are a couple of simple math facts in relationship to you and me. Here's the thing. If no one else gives me any more pins, you can come back an hour later and I'll only have two pins. You can come back five years later and I'll only have two pins and you won't have them anymore. Now, I know that sounds simplistic, but it's that very concept that makes us selfish. Is that when we deal with people, when we deal with life as we understand it, anytime something goes out of my hand and into that person's hand, then it's just an exchange. So if you gave me these two pins and I got no more pins, I'm only going to have two for this simple reason. I can't create pins. I can't create. And you're not going to have them in your hand anymore because you can't create. But here's what we must understand. God is so different from dealing with anyone else. Because anytime you put something in God's hands, he multiplies it. He is a God of multiplication. In fact, when he created this world, he spun multiplication as a principle into very creation itself. For instance, if we had a watermelon, which is my favorite food in the world. If we had a watermelon up here and we slice it in half, we would look and see seeds in that watermelon because God has put multiplication into our universe. It's not, in other words, that watermelon can do more than replicate itself. It can multiply itself, and that's how God works. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to do something today I almost never do. I'm going to give you three Bible stories. Usually, I only give you one because I don't want the dynamics of one story to confuse another story. But the reason why I want to give you three Bible stories today is I want to establish a pattern. I want to show you that God establishes a pattern of multiplication. And beyond that, I want to show you three nuances that are very important for us. Now, when we think about God multiplying, typically, we think about God multiplying quantity. And that's going to be my first point today. But by no stretch is that my favorite point of the message. The second point is my favorite point. But since we typically think about God multiplying quantity, let's start there. Because it is true. Anytime you put anything in God's hands, he multiplies the quantity. Our story comes from the Gospel of John chapter 6. It's a story that's in several of the Gospels, but I'm pulling John, John's account of it because John gives us one fact that the other writers leave out, and that fact is very important. Here's the setting. Jesus has been teaching all day around the Sea of Galilee. He really wanted some R&R &R with his disciples, but you know, as he left with his disciples, the crowd followed him. And he had pity on the crowd, and he healed the people that were sick, and he began to teach. 
The crowd got bigger and bigger, and then actually it seems like another whole crowd joined the crowd. So now by this point, it's late afternoon. Jesus has been teaching all day. The people have gone without eating. They're hungry, and Jesus is concerned about them. He was, he's afraid to send them home because he's afraid that being hungry, you know, they'll, they'll have a hard time. You know, they, they won't be strong enough to make it home. So Jesus turns to his disciples, specifically Philip, and he asks them a question. Where do we go for more? Uh, let's read it from the text. Where do, can we buy bread to feed all these people? Where should we go to find more? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Now, that's a great dynamic translation. But a, some of you have a more literal reading of this in which Philip said, if we had a year's salary, it wouldn't be enough for everybody to have just a little. <laughs> Philip is your quintessential pessimist. He's like, we don't have it, but if we did have it, it wouldn't be enough. Now, I'm thankful that Andrew is there because every time you find Andrew in the New Testament, he's always finding something or finding somebody. He's a finder. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Isn't it interesting how he's always called Andrew Simon Peter's brother like he had it printed on his checks? Maybe it was just such a badge of honor to be Peter's brother put up with him. Maybe that's why God keeps putting it in the Bible. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves. Barley loaves were the coarsest bread people ate in those days. Five barley loaves and two fish. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I used to hear this story, and I'd think loaves of bread like loaves of bread in the store. Five loaves of bread. That's a bunch of bread for a kid to have in a sack. And then I was thinking he had maybe a couple of bass, you know, with him. But that's not what he had. And when the Bible says loaves there, it's talking about what we might call pita bread today. So he had five flat rounds of pita bread, and it being barley bread, it was so coarse that it was almost tasteless. The two little fish that he had, the people around the Sea of Galilee would harvest the little tiny fish, and they would dry them out to add some spice to the, the tasteless bread. It was like sardines or anchovies. You know, guys, I've never been tempted by it. I've never eaten a sardine. They don't tempt me. But that's what this kid basically had. Just so that you'll get a picture of it, he had five pieces of pita bread and a couple of sardines in a sack lunch that his mama packed for him that day before he went to hear Jesus. I find it amazing that the kid never got into it. I'm telling you, Jesus must have been, in, he must have been something to listen to. Because when John speaks and calls him a boy in the Greek language, it means little boy. So I'm guessing he's six, seven, eight years old. I mean, think about this. We, we, we think a lot about making our presentations engaging in kids' world. Jesus must have been something to listen to if you've got a seven-year-old boy that doesn't get into a sack lunch all day long listening to Jesus. But anyway, Andrew said, we've got a kid here. He's got five loaves and two fish. He's got a sack lunch. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered 5,000. Well, if you have 5,000 men, you probably have 5,000 women. You got 5,000 men, 5,000 women. We know kids are there because we got a kid here. The guess is by Bible students that there's a minimum of 20,000 people here. Jesus got an MBA crowd here that he's dealing with. The men alone number 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps. Now many of you have gone well beyond simple mathematics and you've studied physics. And so if you have studied physics, chances are you're trying to work this problem out from a physics standpoint. Because you've got a sack lunch with five pita bread pieces and two tiny fish. And you've got 20,000 people. 
And not only do they eat everything they want, but on top of that, there are 12 baskets left over. By the way, do you know what skeptics say about this miracle? Nothing is dumber than a Bible skeptic trying to explain a miracle. Skeptics say that what really happened was all 20,000 of these people, all of them had sack lunches, but they were hoarding it. And so when this little boy brought his sack lunch out, they all felt guilty and they brought it out and there was enough for everybody to eat. Crazy, crazy, crazy. For one thing, how could all that fish and bread go undetected just by scent in a hot Mediterranean day? But we'll set that aside. So how did it happen? Well, it happened because here's the thing. Anytime you put something in God's hands, he can multiply it because he's a creator. In John chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says God created everything through Jesus. So this guy standing there holding a sack lunch, he was the one who called the stars out of nothing. He is the one that called the universe out of nothing. So here's the thing that you and I must understand, and this is so important because the rest of this sermon will not make nearly as much sense as it needs to if we don't grasp this one thing. I mean, Jesus didn't need that kid's sack lunch. If he had wanted to, he could have created a full-line buffet out of nothing for this crowd. But there's something that you and I must understand about the Bible, and this is where it's going to get intensely personal in your life and my life. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, or if you've got a Bible app open, you need to understand the message of the Bible is this. God doesn't just want to work for you. He does want to work for you. But he, he doesn't just want to work for you. He wants to work with you. I don't, I don't know why that's so big to him, but it is. When you study Scripture, you will discover this. That God will do miracles for people when they are willing to release what they have in their hand. See, many of us sit down, fold our arms, and say, God, I want you to do a miracle. What we don't understand, and this is so clear throughout all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, God will do miracles, but he will start with what we have in our hands that we're willing to release. Trust me on this. If this kid had been unwilling to release his sack lunch, I don't believe anything would have happened here. You know, I, I love the fact, and the reason why we're looking at John's gospel is he's the only one who talks about the kid. The other gospels just said there was five loaves and two fish there. But John tells us it was a kid that was there. If he had thought like many of us think, the kid would have said something like this. Why should I give up my lunch? About 20,000 people, they got mamas. Look at these big men here. I mean, they, they, should have brought, they should have thought about this. Why should I give up my lunch? And on, on that, before he turns it over to, to Andrew, he could have said, you know, I want some assurances here. Listen, guys, I've been preaching this ever since I was 16 years old. I want to tell you, I thought this when I was young, and I think it now. I am convinced that this kid had no idea what Jesus was going to do. He didn't have John chapter 6 to read. I am convinced that this kid thought in his mind, Jesus wants my lunch and he can have it. I think he thought he was turning it over to Jesus to eat. And I think how it must have, I know I hope God kept all this stuff on, on video because I want to watch it when I get to heaven. I just see this in my mind. I see this kid eating lunch, not the one he brought in his sack, but the one that has come out of the hands of Jesus. And I, I just see him as he eats his own fish and bread that Jesus has given him and then looks around and sees 20,000 people and thinking, all of this came out of my sack. <laughs> but the thing that I envision the most is and there's no, there are no words wasted with Jesus. Why do you think there were 12 baskets left over? How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. And, and one. And this isn't in John's gospel, but one of the disciples said, just send them away so they won't be our problem. Jesus wanted these guys to learn something. So in my mind, I see this little kid going home, and behind him, trotting, 
are 12 grown men, each of them carrying a huge basket of fish and bread. And I see the boy as he gets home and his mama says to him, baby, what's this? And he just said, leftovers. (laughs) No doubt about it. See, when you put anything into God's hands, he can multiply the quantity. Mary Allison, I believe in tithing. We believe that the first tenth of our income belongs to the Lord. And I spent a lot of my life in ministry, and a lot of times we didn't have two nickels to rub together, but we always believed that the first tenth belonged to God. You know, many of us Christians, when we give to the Lord's work, we give with the, uh, I'll, need a, I'll need a box mentality. Like at the end of a restaurant meal, I've already had everything I want, but I'm going to need a box for the leftovers. If I have anything left over, then I'll give it to God. And God knows that. He understands that. But look at what he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. Well, in your case, if you're a new springer, your storehouse is New Spring Church because this is the place where the bread of life goes out. It's the place where you would bring your friends if you want them to hear about Jesus. If you're not at New Spring, it would be wherever you go for spiritual life. The Bible says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. God says, try it. Now, if you were here last week, remember that Jesus told Satan that you should never test God. And yet here is one point in which Jesus said, you can test me on this one. Put me to the test. Try me. Remember, the whole idea is if we're willing to release what we have in our hand, God will multiply it. We have control of a couple of things. When we give to God's work, we have control of the amount we give and the place where we give it. God has control of the floodgates of heaven. And the important thing is for me to take what I have in my hand that I'm willing to give and release it to God in the place where he says bring it. And then God says he will open the floodgates of heaven. Could I say something to us? And you know I don't talk a lot about giving here at New Spring, I should talk more about it, really, because it's to your advantage that I do. Because if you're not systematically giving to God's work, you're poorer than you would be. You know, the thing that I find a lot of times among Christians is that Christians will give, like I said, with the leftovers. If I have anything left over, then I'll bring it to God. After I've done everything I want to do, after I've entertained myself, after I've fed myself, after I've clothed myself, after I've done all the things that I want to do, then if I have anything left over, then I'll bring it to God. Or if there's a need sometimes, and and you guys are really good about this, if I'll tell you about a need somewhere, we'll step up and respond to that need. But I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to become a percentage giver. Because there's something about being a percentage giver that is a discipline to say the first percentage, whatever it is. And I'm I'm not asking you to get outside your headlights. I'm asking you to stay inside the headlights of your faith. Because some of you could say, Mark, to be honest with you, my finances are such a wreck right now, I wouldn't even know where to find 10% of my money. I understand that. But let me ask you this. Could I challenge you to think about setting aside 1%? I'll never know. It's between you and God. But to set aside 1% and say, okay, I'm going to give the first 1% to God. Not the leftovers. I'm giving the first 1% or the first 3% or the first 5%. And then just put God to the test. And here's the thing. Here's the covenant. Because you say, Mark, I may not be able to give 10%. But if you give that first first 1% and God blesses you, then increase it. 
Because what I've discovered in my life is it's that systematic percentage giving that God blesses in a magnificent way. So, no doubt about it, if you put something in God's hands, he multiplies the quantity. That's true. But that's not my favorite part of this message. Here's the thing. If you've lived for any length of time, life is going to put you in a place where more of something isn't going to solve your problem. I mean, it's good to have more money, more business, more customers, more education, you know, bigger team. All those things, all those quantity issues of life are great. And I'm not knocking them, they're important. But I'm just telling you, I've got situations in my life that quantity's not going to fix. And here's the thing that is so wonderful about God, is that God is not only able to multiply quantity, He's able to do something I have a hard time articulating and understanding, and yet I know it's true. He can actually multiply the quality. He can actually change the essence of a situation and turn it into a different essence. I take you now to the second story. It occurs early in the life of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Although on this day, he hasn't put out a sign saying he's doing ministry, he's going to a wedding. And he's there with his mother and most likely his brothers and his sisters. There, there's teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but that's a man-made theory. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus was virgin-born, but he had sisters and brothers. I say that because it must have been interesting having God in your family. Um, <laughs> Jesus had a younger brother named James who was a piece of work. And, and James, the Bible tells us, didn't believe in Jesus till after Jesus rose from the grave. But I'm sure it was hard growing up as Jesus' younger brother because you had your mother being like all other mothers who would have said to James, why can't you be more like Jesus? Uh, <laughs> which is a great thing for you and me to say to each other, but I'm sure it's not easy to be Jesus' kid brother. But anyway, I want you to get this picture in your mind because Mary is there and it's probably her niece or her nephew, somebody in her family, and they're invited to this wedding. Let's pick it up at this point. There was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him that they have no more wine. Now, I love this, because even though you're talking about the Son of God and his mom, families are all, all the same, aren't they? Because Mary's embarrassed. And she says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Isn't it interesting to hear God talking like that? That's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And I don't see here that Mary, Mary continued the dialogue with Jesus. She just turned to the servants and she preaches one of the greatest sermons you will ever hear in your life. She says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Do you get that in your head? Here's this picture. They go in there. They're out of wedding. Mary says, they're out of wine. Jesus says, it's not a problem. Jesus, Mary said, just do what he tells you to do. Well, let's read on. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip out some and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions because Mary had told them, do whatever he tells you to do. Now work with me for a moment. If it had been me, not Jesus, and I told those guys to fill up the jars with water, and I took a dipper, and I dipped inside one of the jars and took it to the master of ceremonies. Help me. What would be in the dipper? Water. 
I put water in, I get water out. That's just my, the way it is for me. But the Bible tells us that when this happened, look in verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. He said, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everybody's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. This is the thing I love about this story because Jesus is not only able to multiply the quantity, he's also able to multiply the quality. He is able to change something from one essence to another. And beyond that, if you think about the making of wine, not only did he change liquid from one liquid to another, wine involves process, wine involves time, and yet Jesus instantly changed the essence. By the way, a lot of times we wonder about the age of the earth. I mean, Jesus clearly did something here that involved an aging process, and yet he did it instantly. That's a discussion for another day. That's amazing to me. And let me tell you why it's amazing. Because I don't know about you, but I've got situations in my life where the essence of one situation needs to go from being what it is to being something else. See, here's the thing. A lot of times in my life, I'll use an expression to describe life. I'll say it is what it is. You say that? How many of us with our marriage, it is what it is? How many of us with our kids, it is what it is? How many of you go to a job that you hate and you just, when somebody asks you about where you work, you say it is what it is? Or you're a situation in life and you can just fill in the blank and describe it. Somebody asks you, how's this going? Well, it is what it is. Well, when you think about the water that, that, that was put into the jar, I mean, the thing about it is when Jesus got a hold of it, it wasn't what it was anymore. It was something else. It started out water. It became wine. I'm believing today, if I read the inference of the scripture correctly, what Jesus is saying to us, if we are willing to take what is in our hand that we're not happy with and turn it over to him, he is actually able to change it from the essence of what it is to the essence of something else. How many of us here today need Jesus to take our marriage and turn water into wine? How many of us have relationships with kids that need to change from water to wine? How many of us are in a career field where we need Jesus to change water to wine. He can do it, you know. But man, we need to go back to Sister Mary for some coaching here. All my life I've been told, turn things over to God. And we've said that whenever you put something in the Lord's hands, he multiplies it. But here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's what I'm learning. And here's why Mary's sermon is so important today. Many times when we turn our life, like our marriages or our kids, our careers, whatever we're talking about, when we turn it over to God, turning it over to God looks something like this. I'm going to sit down over here, God, with my arms folded, and I'm going to leave it to you to work, and you go work your mojo or magic or whatever it is, and then call me when it's done. That's not turning it over to God. That's not what it means to put your marriage in God's hands or to put your kids in God's hands or to put your career in God's hands, or your finances. That's not what it means. Do you remember what Mary said? She said, do what he tells you to do. See, I can't turn water to wine, but I can fill up jars with water. And that's the thing. Because see, here's the thing. Many of us are frustrated with God because he hasn't turned water into wine, but we're not doing what he tells us to do. We've got New Spring Singles. And, and, and you're here and you love the Lord and you love this church. And, and you're talking, you know, you're talking about, I want to have a godly marriage. I want to have Jesus center of my marriage. And yet a date to you is a sleepover. You're not doing what he tells you to do. You say, well, Mark, I lift my hands in worship. Yeah, and you're extending your middle finger when you do it. I mean, here's the thing. In our culture today, we're so broken. We're so trained to do what is wrong 
that when we as Christians are maybe just a little bit different from the world around us, we feel very good about things, but we still haven't done what he's asked us to do. You want the Lord and I want the Lord to turn water into wine. Then we need to listen to Mary. Mary said, do what he tells you. You say, well, it doesn't make any sense. It could be expensive. Doesn't matter. Do what he tells you to do. You know, standing up here and thinking about the altar on this side reminds me of a story. I don't counsel much anymore, especially with husbands and wives and marriage and that kind of thing. But back in the day I did. This has probably been 15 years ago. And I need to let you know before I tell the story that back in those days, we only had one service on Sunday morning. And it was smaller than this crowd, even with a holiday weekend. But we used to have altar calls. And at the end of the service, I would ask people if they want to come forward to pray. So just follow that away. But anyway, the, I don't know, it was like Wednesday or Thursday. I had a couple in my office. And guys, just between you and me, it was the worst counseling session I ever had in my life. I, I'm usually optimistic. I believe God is able to do anything. But most times, you know, I have a sense of this is what this couple needs to do to get where they need to go. But honestly, between you and me, I heard this couple and I thought they don't have a snowball's chance. And I'll tell you why. When people come in to talk to a pastor, usually on their best behavior. Well, this couple, when they came in, he said over here and she said over here. I mean, they got as far away as they could get from each other. And I, have, I had at that time a pretty large office. And I mean, they were like sitting at opposite ends of my office. Counseling was like a tennis match. And, and you know, the guy was well known. He had a business. Everybody in the city would have known who he was. And so I couldn't believe that they were embarrassing themselves as much as they were because they got into a full-blown, rip-roaring, shouting match in my office. It's like I wasn't even there. And the things they said to each other were the most poisonous, hurtful things I've ever heard in my life. And after a few minutes, and I didn't know what, what else to say. So I just told him the truth. I said, I don't think you guys have a snowball's chance. I really don't. And I said, the only chance I think you have, and this is a long time ago, and I did a series in 1992. It's probably not even available anymore. But I did a series on marriage called Building Your House on the Rock. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to get you a box series of these messages, Building Your House on the Rock. And if you have any chance at all, you need to listen to these messages at breakfast and pray together. Now, honestly, between you and me, when they walked out of my office, I thought, no way. But I, I spoke the next Sunday morning, and when I gave the altar call, out of the corner of my eye, right over here, right, right at this place, I saw the most amazing thing. I saw something I've never seen before. There was a man and a woman lying in each other's arms on the altar. Not kneeling, but lying, holding each other on the altar. And I looked over, and it was this couple that I had seen. Because you know what they did? They went home. They listened to the messages. They prayed together. They were here for a good while after that. He sold his business. They moved to another city. I got cards from them for years. They were faithful in their church and in love with each other. Why? Because they just did what Jesus said. And here's the deal. We can call ourselves Christians. We can listen to Christian radio. We can go to a dozen Bible studies. We can have bumper stickers on our car that say, Honk, if I love Jesus, Honk, you know, if you love Jesus, but if you won't do what he tells you to do, he will not turn water into wine. Now I've got four minutes to give you the last story, and they're attached. Because here's the thing, and I know what some of you are out here thinking. Some of you are saying, Mark, I would 
do what Jesus tells me to do, but it would mean I would have to stop a course of action that I'm already into. It could be you're in a relationship and it's not a good relationship. He abuses you. But it's like, but Mark, I've got so much invested in him. I mean, we've been together three years. And, and, and I know he's not God's will for my life, but, you know, I've, I've got some, what, what about all this I've got invested? Or, or Mark, I know she's not God's will for my life, and, and, and she's, you know, she sleeps around, and she, she's with other guys, and, but you, I've just got so much invested in her. Or, Mark, I know that this is not what I need to be doing because what I'm doing is not honest, but it's the only career I've got. And if I stop this now, where am I going to get income? My third story comes from the Old Testament. There was a king named Ahaziah. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 1, he was 25 when he became king. And verse 2 tells us that he was a whole lot like a lot of us. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. In other words, he did what, he did what God wanted him to do when he wanted to, and he didn't do what God wanted him to do when he didn't want to do it. Anyway, he had to go up against an army. And he hired mercenaries. He went to the nation of Israel, which at that time was apostate. He went to the nation of Israel and he hired 100,000 soldiers and he paid them 100 talents of silver. Now we calculated that on Tuesday by silver's closing price. That's a little over $2 million. And the prophet of God came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel must not march with you. For the Lord is not with Israel. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you. Before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. So basically, after putting $2 million into mercenaries, hiring guys, the prophet of God said to him, I'm sorry, sir, you can't have these guys go with you because God will make sure you lose if you keep going down this course of action. And Amaziah asked him the question that a lot of us are asking right now, which is something like this. If I do the right thing now, I'm going to lose a lot of what I've invested. And Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? The answer is one of my top ten favorite lines in the Bible. And I think about it almost every day. The man of God replied, the Lord can give you so much more. You say, Mark, I can't let him go. The Lord can give you much more than that. You say, Mark, I can't, I can't let her go. The Lord can give you much more than that. You say, Mark, I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't be honest in business. The Lord can give you much more. Don't you understand? I mean, honestly, if you gave me the two pins, you're going to lose them, and I, I, I'm not going to be able to create any more. But when you put something in God's hands, he multiplies it, not just the quantity, but the quality. The challenge is not how can we, where do we go for more? The challenge is how can I trust God? Because as soon as I trust God, this game set match. If I trust God enough to, to put something in his hands, if I trust God enough to do what he, what he says do, it's already over. It's, it's a done deal. I don't have to worry about how he's going to multiply the loaves and fish. I don't have to worry about the chemical aspects of how you turn water into wine. I've just put it in the hands of the creator. Anytime you put anything into the hands of the Lord, he multiplies it. You gain? That's the key to success. You know, 
as I close out this talk, the one thought that comes to me is the greatest multiplication that takes place is when you and I put our lives in the hands of Christ, when we trust him with our soul. Because at most, you're only going to live here 100 years, a little more maybe. And you know, the thing about it is, most of us, the honest truth is, most of us will wind up living too long. We'll wind up trapped in a body sometime. But the Bible tells you this. If you're willing to put your soul in the hands of Jesus, he multiplies it into everlasting life. And not just the quantity, everlasting, but the quality, life in heaven with him. And I just want to ask you as I close out this talk, have you ever put your soul... That means you're the person you are. You're in the person, the part of you that's eternal. Have you ever put your soul in Christ's hands? You say, Mark, how do I do that? Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as I close out this talk, I want to have a prayer with you. And if you're ready to do that, you can pray with me. The important thing is not the words, it's what you mean in your heart. Dear God, I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. There's much I don't understand, but I take you at your word. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. I trust my soul to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I know it happened quickly, but I have a gift I want to give you. It'll be an easier day. We're not as crowded as normal today. So um, if you will, if you, you just put on the talk to us card. I pray with Mark. If you'll bring it back to guest services in the middle of the lobby or back by the coffee shop, I have a gift packet I want to give you. There's a DVD in it, a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions, and a coupon for a new Bible. Guys, thanks for being with us today. I pray that this talk will get into, your, into the fabric of your life. I promise you. I just gave you the keys to the Mercedes. We'll see you soon.